time when plague would strike. And when plague struck, everybody would die. Often 50% of a town would, were, died in a plague. And plague struck fairly regularly. And they often went from town to town and from country to country. And so when plague struck, when plague struck, um, we Jews were not usually spared. We usually were affected as well. However, we tended to die in much, much lower numbers than our neighbors. And for that reason, we, we Jews were often blamed for the plagues. Well, also because they hated us and they blamed Jews for everything, as they still do. Um, we were blamed for everything. And so um, we were still bl we were blamed for the plagues, but it was also noticeable that less Jews tended to die um, in plagues. And this was particularly true in the famous Black Plague of 1348, which was considered the worst plague that ever hit Europe. And um, as much as a third of European um, the European population died in the Black Plague. Um, while there were Jews that died, Jews died in much, much smaller numbers. Jews were, as a result, blamed for the B Black Plague. And while they didn't die as much in the plague, there were pogroms across Europe, and Jews were killed. They were accused of poisoning the wells. And the evidence was that the Jews didn't die. Now, often they just claim Jews didn't die. You know, Jews were, of course, responsible for 9-11. Right, and um, that's that's actually you'll be surprised how many people who have been mainstreamed peddle in that theory and still believe in that, and they're considered mainstream and acceptable today. Um, Jews are responsible for 9/11, and the evidence is that no Jews died, which of course is not true, right? So they often, you know, conspiracy theories often don't need real facts. Uh, but there is truth that less Jews tend to die in plagues because while we didn't have modern medicine or modern biology, we had a mix of practices that um, really protected us and made us very, very hygienic. And I'm going to split these practices into three different groups. Firstly, we had specific Jewish hygiene rules. We had special rules in Judaism directly for hygiene. We were supposed to be hygienic, and I'll soon explain why. We also had special rules of hygiene that were required for certain mitzvot, particularly prayer. We had to be extra hygienic for specific things, as we mentioned earlier with Moses. He couldn't pray um, in the main city of Egypt. He had to go out of the city because of hygiene. And there were also rituals that were done for other reasons, other mitzvot, that had as a side benefit that the purpose of them was not hygiene, but as a side benefit, it led to greater hygiene. So I'm going to break them up one by one. And so firstly, the importance of personal hygiene in Jewish law. The Torah tells us, when we're in a military camp, we must go out of that camp to relieve ourselves. Now, that's, this sounds like obvious to us today, but it wasn't always obvious. When in camp, you have to go out of the camp to relieve yourself. You also, the Torah says, must have a shovel with you, and you must cover your waist after you're done. Um, you must make sure it is covered. Now, this rule is not only for a military camp, but this is anywhere. We Jews are forbidden to relieve ourselves in front of others. We must go outside to a private place to relieve ourselves. While this sounds obvious today, it was not ob always obvious throughout most of society. Um, restrooms must be apart from living quarters and must be created in a way that human waste is always covered. And so that itself creates a very important level of sanitation that in much of the world didn't exist. In much of the world, human waste was perhaps done in a pail, in the home. 
It may be taken out once a day. Um, for Jews, that didn't work. We had to have an outhouse where you had to go out to, and it had to be a hole in the ground that could be covered afterwards um, in a way that um, it didn't create hygienic problems. The Torah tells us, in describing these rules, that you shall do this, kadosh. Your, your camp will be holy. This, these rules, rules of hygiene, are associated with holiness. And the Mishnah tells us that cleanliness, being clean, leads to purity. Nikayon leads you to tahara, to purity. And so we're expected to be clean, we're expected to be hygienic. Uh, we have other hygiene rules that our sages developed over the years, including we are expected to wash our hands every time we relieve ourselves and ensure that no residue remains on our hands. While this today is basic hygiene, uh, we all do that for a very long time. People, It was not the norm for people to wash themselves. Only Jews were the only ones that did this, that washed their hands after going to the bathroom. We're also not only required to clean ourselves when we're leaving ourselves, but we are required whenever we eat to make sure our hands are clean. Our hands always have to be clean whenever we eat. Um, we're supposed to uh, make sure no residue of dirt remains on our hands. Um, we're also supposed to be careful that when we eat, we eat in a clean way. The Torah tells us, Al teshaktsu esnaf which means do not disgust yourselves or do not do anything disgusting. That's a command. Which is explained to mean that it's defined in our oral tradition as you're not allowed to eat anything that you would naturally be disgusted by, such as anything rotten, moldy, dirty. Now for us that's all normal, but remember people didn't always have food, wasn't readily available. People did eat this kind of stuff. People did eat stuff from the ground. It wasn't today we have modern hygiene. People didn't always understand this. People didn't always appreciate it. We're not allowed to eat with dirty hands. We're not allowed to eat with dirty utensils. In fact, the Talmud tells us that we have to wash ourselves regularly. And Hillel, the great sage Hillel, says that it is a mitzvah to take a bath. It is a mitzvah to bathe oneself regularly. And he explains why. We people, hard to imagine, but remember, without running water and without hot running water, taking a bath was no easy feat. And it wasn't done all that often. People didn't shower all that often. Um, and it was done by pouring water on yourselves. The Romans had bathhouses, which themselves were not necessarily all that clean. But people were not always all that clean. Um, but we're supposed to take our bath. And Hillel explains the reason is that we humans are created in the image of God. We represent God. So if we walk around dirty, we're a picture of the God's picture is, so to speak, dirty. So we have to always be spotlessly clean. Um, and so because of that also, the Talmud requires us to um, wash our hands and face daily. Every day when we get up, we have to wash our hands and face and says the same thing. We are created in the image of God. We must always look clean. 
So we're warned not to be dirty. We're warned not to have dirty clothing. This all sounds normal today. Today it's not normal to see people dirty. But if you went back to the village 200 years ago, everybody walked around dirty. Everyone except the Jews. Jews were always clean. We always walked around with our faces clean, our hands clean, our clothing clean. We always took extra steps to be clean. Remember, many people had dirt floors. It wasn't that easy to stay clean, right? Things, there, was, things, there was dirt everywhere. It wasn't always easy to stay clean. We Jews always took extra effort in staying clean. Now, nowhere in our early works did we know about germs, about the spread of viruses, um, about modern sanitation. Um, isn't anywhere discussed in Jewish books. But we have many rules that imply that our sages had a pretty good understanding of the concept of sanitation and the concept of disease transferring from person to person, from animals to people, through dirt. We have rules in the Talmud, such as it is forbidden to drink from someone else's cup because of their saliva. It is also forbidden to drink from a cup without washing it out first. Um, the Talmud says, when you greet someone, do not kiss them on the lips, rather kiss them on their hands, something that Jews from Arabic countries still do today. They greet people by kissing them on their hands, uh, but don't kiss people on the lips because it's unhealthy, unsafe. Um, Sorry? Hands could also be a problem. Hands could be a problem too, yes. yes. We also have to wash our hands um, before eating. Our hands were supposed to be clean. The Talmud tells us we should not go outside when there's a plague. Um, we shouldn't get too close to sick people. Stand at least four cubits, or which is six feet away from somebody who is sick. Keep a distance to avoid um, unhygiene. Um, the Talmud even understood about the transfer of disease from animals to people. The Talmud mentions that when, um, when there is a plague among pigs, um, one should stay indoors because it can transfer to people as well. We're also warned, um, today we know that there are, um, there are bacteria in the air that can... Um, often get into food and make food rot or make food unhealthy when uncovered. We're not supposed to drink from liquid that stayed open overnight. Uh, we're not supposed to eat food left uncovered. The Talmud specifically mentioned certain types of food, um, onions, uh, eggs that were commonly left. Um, one cannot eat if they're left overnight. So these are all clear rules that show that not only did they have believe in hygiene, in other words, being clean in general, but had a very clear understanding of the transfer of disease from person to person, transfer of disease from animals to people, and um, even um, when things left open, disease in the air. Um, and so we took all these as precautions of protecting oneself, which is a mitzvah. One must guard your soul. It's a mitzvah to protect oneself and stay healthy. And these were all part of the rules for staying healthy. So clearly, as we see, in Judaism, staying clean is very, very important. Um, we have special rules for staying clean that our neighbors most often did not have, which kept men that Jews walked around very clean. We had special rules for hygiene. We didn't transfer things from person to person. Um, 
with these special hygiene with special hygiene rules, we had a sense we knew that disease transferred among people. That disease can come from the air, from um, bacteria in the air. We know it was bacteria, but we knew it could come from the air. We knew that disease could transfer from animals to people. So we had a pretty good understanding of how disease worked, and as a result, um, we managed to stay a lot healthier than our neighbors, and we managed to avoid plague, at least to a, lot, in a, to a greater extent than our neighbors did. Now, in addition to all of these rules, we also had specific hygiene rules, which weren't really hygiene rules, but cleanliness rules for holiness, part of being holy. And this was particularly for prayer. So in Judaism, we are commanded to pray three times every single day. Every Jew is commanded to pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. On Shabbat and festivals, we pray four times in the day. So we pray every single day. We also, before and after we eat, every time we eat, we say a blessing. Uh, before and after we eat. We have other times we say blessings, including when we go to the bathroom. Um, uh, after, of course, we have to first wash our hands before we're able to even say a blessing. And we have rules as to the high, uh, uh, rules as to we have to be extra clean for prayer. We're told we're not allowed to pray near any human waste or anything with a bad smell. So not only in general did we have to cover our waste and we wouldn't have to relieve ourselves outside or away from everybody else, but if someone did relieve themselves in front of others or you're in a place where human waste is visible, you're not allowed to pray over there. You have to remove it. You have to take it away. Not only that, if anything's rotten or anything smells bad, you're not allowed to pray in front of it. You have to move away from it. Um, if you have waste in, pu in the public, you're not allowed to pray in the public. In synagogues, often public places like synagogues or places of prayer for other peoples, were places that were unhygienic because they were left dirty. Uh, synagogues had to be kept clean, clean for prayer. Pray for prayer, we had to be extra clean. We also, because we couldn't pray near human waste or anything with a bad smell, that of course included ourselves. And that meant we could never have a bad smell when we prayed. And particularly, and Tom is very clear about this, we needed to wipe ourselves after we relieved ourselves. Now, this is not an easy feat before they had toilet paper. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but it's true. They used to, the Talmud explains how they did it. They used, um, they didn't have paper. Paper wasn't invented yet. They used stones. They used smooth stones. And they had to, every time you relieve yourself, you had to go outside and find smooth stones. Uh, but you had to relieve yourself and make sure that you were totally clean before you were able to pray. Um, you also had to, uh, the Talmud's clear, we do so with our left hand, not with your right hand, since the right hand touches food, that we washed ourselves. And remember, water wasn't, you didn't just go to the tap after you went to the bathroom and, um, you know, put your hand under the soap and then put your hand under the sink. To wash yourselves meant that you had to take, um, you had to take water from a barrel or wherever you had water from. Um, that you would take from the well and use that kind of water and every, all the water that you brought had to be measured because you had to carry it up the hill. Um, it wasn't easy to do. Every time you used water, it was calculated. You didn't just turn the shower on. And even so, you had to wash yourself, your hands very well every time you, um, 
before you prayed. Um, we're also supposed to be sure that there's no dirt on us before we pray. Um, so if we prayed at home, we have to make sure that all the garbage was always covered. So we weren't allowed to have, because we prayed at home, we weren't said blessings at home, we weren't allowed to have our garbage out. So garbage had to be in a covered bin. That wasn't common. Only Jews had garbage in a covered bin. It couldn't be lying around. So these kind of strict rules for prayer ensured that we always stayed very clean in person. It also ensured that our surroundings always stayed very clean. Not only that, we had a rule, uh, we mentioned earlier that one should bathe regularly, but we had a minimum one had to bathe at least once a week before Shabbat. Every Friday, every Jew was expected to bathe before Shabbat. One had to enter Shabbat clean. One also had to make sure they wore clean clothing for Shabbat. It's hard to imagine, but not too long ago, um, we didn't have large wardrobes. Wardrobes keep expanding. If you ever notice, if anyone lives in an older house that was built more than 20 years ago, you'll notice there's very little wardrobe space. Um, That's because every year, the wardrobes keep expanding. So um, there was once a time, not too long ago, when people had one, maybe two, three changes of clothing, and that was it. Um, And so um, Jews always had a special Shabbat clothing, special change of clothing for Shabbat. They would have two changes of clothing for weekday. They could wear one and wash one. But we always had to wear clean clothing for Shabbat. We always had to make sure our clothing was clean. So we always had to do our laundry before Shabbat. So at least once a week, we had to wash our clothing. Um, so with all of these rules, which were not for necessarily health or hygiene for holiness, but this was more hygiene for prayer, this ensured that we Jews were extra, extra clean with all of these rules. On top of this, we also had other important rules that were not directly related to hygiene. We have rules that were really rituals for other reasons, given to us for other mitzvahs, but they indirectly had indirect benefits that they made us extra clean as well. Among those rules, one of the biggest problems in earlier times was that disease traveled from the dead. And this was a very common problem. Um, Louis Pasteur who discovered modern, um, um, uh, modern ba- uh, the modern understanding of bacteria and how germs spread, um, discovered that we were actually killing people in hospitals. Um, people would come to hospitals, and while the doctors were trying to save them, people tended to die more in hospitals than live. And this is, only, this is not that long ago. This is about 120 years ago. Um, And we were actually killing people in hospitals because when people would die in hospitals, the doctors would use the same hands that they used to dissect the dead or to deal with the dead, they would use them to treat the living. And so people, and so death would, uh, disease would travel from the dead to the living. Even more so during plague. During plague, large numbers of people died. And nobody wanted to touch the dead because they knew that the plague traveled from person to person. So what did they do? They left the dead lying around, lying at home, lying in the streets. What happened? The flies, the mosquitoes came, picked up bacteria from the dead and transferred them to living people, keeping the plagues moving from person to person. They didn't know that. 
Judaism had very special rules for how we treat the dead. Firstly, Jewish law has rules called Tumah and Tara, which we're going to soon talk about more in detail, ritual purity, which means that any food, among those rules, um, any food that is found in the room of somebody who dies cannot be eaten. So if there's food in the room of someone who dies, it cannot be eaten. And while this was not for hygiene, you could see the hygienic value because bacteria travels in the air and travels from the dead. Dead are usually full of bacteria. will travel from the dead to food, into open food in the room. Um, we are also, before we bury a person, we have a process called the tahara, which means we must clean them. We scrub down the body before we bury them. We clean the body. So the body is clean before they are buried. Um, so, they become, so, so that itself takes away a lot of the bacteria that a person releases um, when they die. And then on top of that, we are required, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, to bury the dead straight away. We should not wait at all. Ideally, the same day, the day of death. The reason for this, of course, is respect for the dead. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. Um, because of the respect for the dead, we believe the soul remains with the dead person until burial, and they cannot find peace and move on in their journey until, um, until burial. So out of respect for the dead, we must... Um, uh, uh, we must bury them straight away. But of course, this led to very great hygiene. Even in times of plague, Jews would have a wagon that would go around, and even if it would be a mass grave, because it, wouldn't be, it would be too hard to dig uh, individual graves, but we would bury the dead immediately. Even during the Holocaust in the ghettos, when people were dying left and right, um, we Jews, every ghetto had um, death wagons that carried out the dead straight away to avoid, um, to avoid, um, well, because of the mitzvah and to, of course, avoid plague. And so we, in that way, we Jews greatly, um, while the goal was for the safety of, the, was for the respect of the dead, it clearly led to a much, much more hygienic society. Now, on top of all this, we had a series of rules in Judaism called Tumah and Tahara, which is ritual purity, most of the laws of Tumah and Tara involved the temple. When a person, there were a number of ways, I'm going to discuss a couple of them, um, that a person could become Tameh, which means ritually impure or unclean. And when they became Tameh, they were not allowed to go to the temple, eat sacrificial meat, eat other holy things such as the Truma, the gift given to the Kohen. There were, special, there were limits on someone who was Tameh. When they became Tahor, went through the process of becoming Tahor, then they were allowed to enter the temple, they were allowed to eat sacrificial meat, allowed to offer sacrifices, allowed to eat all these other holy foods. So these special rules, mostly that applied when the temple stood, some of it which is still relevant and still important to our hygiene today. Now these rules were not made for hygiene. We don't believe they were. They're made because God gave us these special rules of Tumah and Tara. We don't have a reason for them. They f fall under the collection of laws called Chukim, um, rules that we don't know why God told us to do it, but we know that he told us to do it. So the rules of Tumah means that anytime someone became Tameh, the only way they would become Tahar would be by going to the Mikvah. They had to go to a mikvah, which was a pool of natural water, 
um, they would go and dip in the mikveh and then they would become tahor. Now, in order to become tahor, in order to go into the mikveh, before a person went into the mikveh, they had to be, be perfectly clean. They were not allowed to have a speck of dirt on their body. And there is a long process that in Hebrew we call chafifa, which is to clean oneself before going into the mikveh. And it's a fairly long process. And while most of the laws of Tuma and Tara don't apply anymore, we do still keep the rules of nida. A woman, after she um, sees blood or gets her menstrual cycle, um, must go to the mikveh in order to... She separates from her husband and then must go to the mikveh. Before going to the mikveh, she must go through this hafifa process, which involves first soaking in water for a half hour. They would first you have to soak in water for a half hour. And then you have to clean every single part of your body, including parts that normally um, it crevices and parts like belly button and under the arms and parts that may, behind the ears, that may often be overlooked. Every single part of the body has to be perfectly clean. In addition, the, your hair must be perfectly combed. No knots in the hair, your hair must be perfectly combed. So this cleaned in temple times when we kept... The, when we kept the rules of Tuma and Tara, people had to clean themselves regularly. Today, women, um, and throughout our history since the temple's destruction, have at least once a month gone through this thorough cleaning process as part of the mikveh process. Yes? The mikveh is for women. Well, in the temple times, it was for men too. To go into the temple or to eat sacrifices, everyone had to go to the mikveh. Today, the only ones that still keep it are the only ones that still have to do it are the women for the nida for their menstrual cycle. Now, one of the ways that so that kept us much more clean throughout our history and definitely back in temple times when we kept these rules. One of the things that transferred tuma was a dead rodent. So, dead rodents transferred tuma, and therefore Jews avoided dead rodents. To avoid dead rodents, you have to avoid rodents altogether. So in temple times, and this was only true in temple times, we would close up all food and we would throw out our, our garbage. Now, the city of Jerusalem was the largest city in Israel throughout much of the temple period. It was a very large city and it would swell during the um, pilgrim um, times. We had pilgrimage three times a year for the festivals of Passover, Shavuot and Sukkot. Every, all, all Jews would go up to Jerusalem for the temple and it would swell. We have Greek descriptions of it. Uh, we have other descriptions of it. It would swell to a million people or more um, would come up for the pilgrimage um, to Jerusalem. Now, historically, there were pilgrimages. Um, other religions had pilgrimages in other places. Um, one thing that most pilgrimages throughout history had in common um, is that people, they were full of diseases because people would come from different places carrying their diseases with them. They would usually live very, in very close, cramped, unsanitary conditions. And so usually there was a lot of plague. Um, and in fact, something that Mecca became very famous for, the, greatest, the largest pilgrimage, I think, historically and still today, um, was the plague. And um, in fact, in Islamic traditions, I believe, there was a um, kind of a, it was considered a great thing to die in Mecca from plague, and if you did, you went straight to heaven. So, uh, but it was very common, because the plague, you went to Mecca, there was plague there. That's people were living very close in, in unsanitary conditions, coming from different places. They brought plague with them. Jerusalem was different. 
Jerusalem, we're told, nobody ever got sick during the pilgrimage. There was never a plague, a history of plague during the pilgrimage. Here's why. In Jerusalem, there were no rodents. If you touched a dead rodent, came in contact with a dead rodent, you would become tummy. So there were no rodents in Jerusalem. How were there no rodents in Jerusalem? There was no garbage in Jerusalem. You had to take your garbage outside the city every single day. Your garbage had to be taken out of the city. While most cities historically had um, dirt roads, Jerusalem always had paved roads, paved with stone. But Jerusalem always had paved roads. And there was a team of cleaners paid for from the temple treasury that swept every street in Jerusalem every single day. Talk about street sweeping. So the streets of Jerusalem were kept spotless. No dirt, no garbage, nothing on it. Everyone took out their garbage every single day. As a result, Jerusalem was kept rodent-free. No rodents who were in Jerusalem. And as a result, um, no garbage, no rodents. People kept clean. And, um, of course, they went to mikveh. They had to clean themselves. And as a result, Jerusalem, we never had plague in um, Jerusalem. Um, so these are just some of the rules that we had in ancient times to keep us clean. Um, some of the rules for Tuma and Tara have remained. One rule for Tuma and Tara, well, we mentioned that we have to eat in general with clean hands. Um, there's a specific rule that we had that before we ate bread, in order to remain tahor, our hands are always considered tamay. Before eating bread, while tamay, uh, before eating bread, uh, if we want to be tahor, we would have to wash our hands first and make a blessing after the washing. Our sages said we should do it even when we're not tahor, even when we're tamay. We should still, and not keeping the rules, we should still always wash before eating bread, which is something that we still do today. We always wash our hands before eating bread. Now, in order to wash our hands before eating bread, our hands need to be clean before we wash them before eating bread. We have to check our hands to, that they are clean, including we must always check under our nails. We must always check that under our nails is clean before we wash our hands for bread. And for that reason, Jews generally had shorter nails um, because long nails are hard to check under and hard to keep clean. So we generally had shorter nails. And for all these reasons, um, we Jews tended to stay clean. So in, um, in summary, we... Both the Torah commands us to remain very clean. It's considered holiness, kedusha, to be clean, um, to relieve ourselves far away, outside of living quarters, cover over ourselves. Um, we're supposed to always remain clean, wash ourselves, clean ourselves. Um, it's honor for God, for a person to always be clean since we represent God on earth. Uh, we had specific laws of cleanliness, uh, hygiene, that we recognized to avoid transferring disease, such as um, not, covering, not, um, not using someone else's cup and um, keeping away, uh, standing away from people who are sick and specific things to avoid um, disease. Uh, we also, on top of that, had other rituals, other rules that while not made in order to um, keep us clean and hygienic, they made us more hygienic, including um, uh, the way we treated the dead, um, washing and burying the dead straight away, um, we, uh, washing for Shabbat. I didn't mention, but I, um, also worthwhile mentioning the rules of kosher. Kosher meant that only animals that were slaughtered were allowed to be eaten, which meant that any animal that died naturally could not be eaten. We would avoid allowing animals to die naturally because um, 
we would lose the we would lose we would lose the meat if it died naturally. So we would generally slaughter animals before they got too sick. Um, so again, another way that kept us fairly hygienic. Um, so these are these are all rules um, that kept us, and then the rules of tahara to wash our hands before eating, keeping our nails short. Um, these are all rules that um, kept us clean throughout our history and ensure that Jews were much more hygienic than our neighbors. Yes? I have a question. So with regards to rules, and some of these rules are full-blown blockout, a rule like uh, drinking out of someone else's cup, is that considered rabbinic decree, a minhag, or... That's rabbinical. Rabbinic decree. The rabbinical, yes. Okay. So you may have heard that many years before Louis Pasteur discovered bacteria, there was a doctor in Vienna, a Hungarian doctor in Vienna, in Vienna called Ignaz Semmelweis. And he was a, he, um, he was a doctor in the... Um, he was a doctor in the maternity ward, and he noticed that um, of the women that came to hospital to have babies were dying in much, much larger numbers than women that were having babies at home. And he figured out that the reason why was because the doctors were dissecting the dead and then using their same hands to, um, using their same hands to then um, deliver babies and then those, that bacteria was transferring and killing the mothers. And so um, he tried to get the doctors to wash their hands um, and the doctors were offended by being blamed for killing the mothers, that it was all their fault. And so the doctors refused to cooperate and he ended up dying and it was only decades later. He ended up leaving the hospital and um, he ended up dying young because um, he was rejected um, and his ideas were rejected. It was only decades later that we actually realized how right he was and how important it was to, cut, to wash our hands. So one thing that modern hygiene has taught us is that disease is invisible. We cannot see disease. We cannot see the bacteria. Your hands look clean, but they're not. They need to be washed with soap before you eat. You might look clean, but you're not. Um, water might look fine, but it's not if it was left out. It probably has bacteria in it. Um, things might look okay. The, the flies look okay. The mosquitoes look okay, but they're carrying disease. Um, I think mosquitoes considered the most dangerous um, animal there is. It kills more people than anything else. So, um, so these things might look fine, but they're not okay. And so one thing that modern hygiene has taught us is that not always can you see the problem. Sometimes the problem is beyond something that you can see. Sometimes it looks okay, um, but it's really not okay. Um, we had a teacher many years ago um, who had grown up in the Soviet Union during the war, he was a survivor, well, and he... Um, he and his family had actually escaped the war, like many Soviet Jews, and had escaped to Uzbekistan. And in Uzbekistan, though, they had to deal, they didn't deal with the Nazis, they had to deal with hunger. There was no food. And uh, many people died of hunger um, because the Nazis had captured much of, um, much of Russia, at least the part of the Soviet Union, most, at least the parts that produced the food. So there was very little food available. And so he said he had a friend who um, saw um, bread that had gone off, a food that had gone off. And he said, look, it looks the same. It smells a little different. 
but it looks to say what could be why could it be why is it any worse than any other food? He was hungry. This is in desperation, and he ate that food, and he didn't survive. Um, and he said what it taught him is that just because things look the same doesn't mean that necessarily they are the same. And it teaches us something very powerful, I think, that we can take for life in general. Often the concerns in life are not visible. It's not the things in front of you that are your threats. It's not the visible things that are the problems in life. It's the things that we know or we're told about that are invisible, that we do not see. Those are the things, the bacteria that are really threatening us, that are really going to kill us, the viruses that are really going to kill us, those are the things that we don't see. Today there's been an outbreak in measles because of the anti-vaccination people um, who say um, they see the vaccine, they don't see the measles, at least till their kids get it. And so um, they think that somehow the vaccine and their kid crying is somehow worse than... Um, the getting, uh, then getting the measles and um, measles outbreaks and um, other outbreaks that we've had recently. And so often people only are concerned about that which we see, but we know and hygiene has told, modern hygiene and sanitation has taught us that most of our worst problems are work lurking where we cannot see them at all. Most of the world's greatest dangers are too small to see. They're invisible. We don't see these viruses. Um, viruses even the doctors can't see with their microscopes. Um, they're too small to see, and, um, and, but, they, but they are still yet dangerous, and that is what really kills us. And so it really serves, I think, as a lesson in life in general, that much of our life is, much of the things in our life are, um, the dangers are not things in front of us. And when it comes to Judaism, much of Judaism, God tells us to do things, and we don't necessarily see why he told us. Some things, it's very clear why he told us. But often we don't know why he told us. Say the rules of kosher. The rules of kosher fall into this, um, the group of laws called chukim, laws that we don't understand. We don't understand the reasons for kosher. While kosher may lead to greater hygiene, greater health, there may be a little more health in kosher. Kosher is not necessarily healthy. Yet, though kosher is not necessarily healthy, there isn't necessarily any reason, we do it because God told us to do it. And keeping kosher, God says, is for us Jews is a better way to eat. Not keeping kosher is a bad way to eat. Why? We don't know, but that's what we've been told. Do we understand it? Not necessarily. Do we see it? No. But even things that we don't see, we need to know that the greatest danger is lurking where we don't see it. The greatest dangers are there where we don't see it. The most important parts of life are there where we don't see it. So while we can marvel at, we sh and we should marvel at um, the Jewish understanding of hygiene uh, for thousands of years and our ability to stay much more hygienic and much cleaner than everybody around us for thousands of years and our ability to, um, and the special rules that God gave us the laws God gave us that made us much more hygienic throughout history. Uh, and while we have to appreciate all of that, at the same time, we should also take, um, take this into, uh, as a lesson and remember that the greatest dangers of life are lurking where we cannot see them. The greatest um, concerns are things that we don't know and cannot even understand. And therefore, if we're told something is bad for us, we should be careful about it, even if it doesn't, we don't see it, even if it doesn't look like a problem, even if it doesn't appear to us, don't follow your instinct, but follow what you're told is the right thing. So...